0: Well greetings to you all. It's a pleasure to be here in a such a refreshing time as we were back there worshiping and uh really taking the words of the songs to heart. And so uh it's great to be here and I am pleased to have the opportunity and the honor to preach from God's word this morning. And I want to continue In the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, and it's going to be bringing us from verses chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So I'd invite you to turn there. I'm going to title this message The Absolute Law. Now these scriptures force us to look at things that Bible scholars have wrestled with for centuries. And so this is a very difficult thing for me, and I feel completely unqualified. But all we can do is look at the text and and really examine the scripture and what God has to say, And I'll be basing this on primarily orthodox Christian interpretation of of this group of scriptures. So I want to ask you to please stand again for the reading and the reverence of God's Word. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets... I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can be seated. Thank you. I don't know that we'll make it much further than verses 17 and 18, but we'll see. I've taken more notes for this sermon than I've ever taken before. And uh, it's going to be a challenge to try and connect this together. But as I said, this is something that scholars and, and teachers have wrestled with for centuries. And this is something, for me, that I have struggled with. So this group of scriptures sort of begs the question, how much of the Old Testament and the law is binding on the Christian what is it that God requires from us? And One thing we know for sure, that Jesus did not come to destroy or abolish the law. He's explicit in that. Any part of the law or the prophets, he did not come to abolish. And when I read this, my mind went to, John 5.39, where Jesus says there, search the scriptures because they all testify of me. If Jesus were to come to abolish any part of the prophets or the law, to destroy it, he would be in effect destroying himself and destroying the essence of himself, destroying all the testimony about himself. And so he cannot and will not destroy any part, not even one small part, of the law or the prophets. He says there in verse 18, that one jot or one tittle in no way shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is the smallest Hebrew letter, the, the letter yod. A tittle is the smallest Hebrew alphabetical character. It's almost like a hyphen or a comma. It would be equivalent to us saying, not the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. None of it will pass away. Now, as Jesus has been teaching these things in the Sermon on the Mount throughout chapter 5 of Matthew... The people there, just like we are today, when they read it, they're amazed. When we read it, we're amazed, and when they heard it, they're amazed. These were things that they'd never heard before. And Jesus is here teaching very differently than the scribes and the Pharisees, in many different ways. I remember the scribes and Pharisees, he said, they, they they laid these strong burdens on the people's necks. Jesus came and he taught forgiveness and, and peace and grace. So he's teaching very differently. He, he's not really going at the external part of things, but he's going to the internal. And these Jewish people had grown up as little boys and little girls going to synagogue week after week and learning these things, and Jesus comes along and he's teaching them something they had never heard before. He's teaching them much deeper, more spiritual, and authoritative. Not like the scribes and Pharisees. He was, it was so different that it seemed to many a new thing. It seemed to many a totally new religion, separate from the religion that they had learned growing up as little children. And indeed, it was totally different from the mere external religion the scribes and the Pharisees had taught them. But it wasn't a new thing. It's important to understand that Christianity is not a new religion at all. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So there is a connection between the Jewish religion and the Christian religion that can't be broken. So he wasn't teaching a new thing. And I've wondered that perhaps if Jesus were to come to here in America, in our time, and were to teach a sermon if many Christians would think he was teaching a totally new religion that they'd never heard of before. Because they're so encapsulated in false doctrine that what he was saying, would it be foreign to them? Would it be foreign to us? Because it seemed to be to them who he was preaching to on the Sermon on the Mount. The things that maybe little Christian boys and girls grew up learning in Sunday school, would it be foreign to them? Most likely to many, it would be. To these people that grew up learning an external religion, Jesus is forcing them to look on the inside. Many of us can identify with that. Grew up learning an external religion, and Jesus is going a different direction. So because Jesus can read people's minds, and we know this from throughout the gospel, there's a, a term often used, he perceived their thoughts and said unto them, what reason ye in your hearts? That's an example from Luke 5.22. Jesus is God, so he can read people's minds. When people would be standing afar off, he would say, why, why are you thinking this? He knew what they were thinking. He said he knew what was inside man. Jesus here, too, knew what they were thinking. And this is why he starts off saying, think not. Think not that I'm come to abolish or to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not here to destroy the scriptures. I'm not here to destroy the Old Testament. I'm not starting a completely new thing. I am fulfilling it. I am bringing to pass all the testimony and the promises God made through the prophets. I'm bringing the law back to its original intent and purpose. I'm elevating the law and the prophets as an unwavering, unchanging, absolute truth to an age and generation of subjectional truth. Perverse truth based on the wisdom of man, which is utter foolishness. So we obviously have that going on in our society today, truth that is relative, that's not absolute. People say, well, your truth is your truth. That's what you think? Well, that's fine, but that's not what I think. There was a well-known professor of Harvard Law School many years ago who he came to the conclusion that You can't divorce religion from law. Without religion, the law has no bite. It has really no bearing, and you're left with just philosophy and people's ideas. And so today, as we have diminished the law of God, the law of the state is also diminished. And there is. this is why, you see, uh, court rulings have basically been reduced to philosophical ideas or let's try this and then a few years later that ruling gets overturned by another court and that gets overturned by another court and it goes all the way to the supreme court and then they decide on whether it is and then we have this thing called precedence which is not necessarily an interpretation of the law but an interpretation of a former court's ruling and so these things are there because of an absence of absolute truth. But Jesus is saying that the law is absolute, that it's, it's unchanging, it's unwavering. And he's not coming to abolish it, he's coming to fulfill it. You cannot have real justice and real law without absolute truth. Without a standard to fall back on. So we have to emphasize the absolute unchanging truth of the word of God. So think not, I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. And there's, that's a difference. There's a big difference in that. He's bringing to pass the thing. He he was elevating the law and the prophets. He was trying to emphasize the intent. When When he's going through the Sermon on the Mount and addressing these, countering the external and addressing it in an internal way, he's going to the intent of the law. And he's saying this is the absolute truth. Because it was the religious leaders, the religious teachers that were really abrogating the law and diminishing the word of God with their traditions of man, with their hypocrisy, and with their inconsistency and self-righteousness. He said that you lay these burdens on people's necks and you don't even lift your finger to do them. We see this later on in the sermon uh, where Jesus says, you have heard it said of old time, but I'm saying to you this. You have heard it said, for instance, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you that if any man is angry without a cause, he's already committed murder in his heart. He's not saying a new thing. He's not saying, well, the scriptures and the law says this, but I'm saying this. No, he's saying your traditions have said this. Your false teachers have said this. And you were taught wrong. And I'm correcting that false teaching. So he is preaching the opposite. He's elevating the law of God and going to the intent and the original purpose. And the law and the prophets ought to be elevated in our hearts and in how we live. Firstly, because it all testifies of Jesus. All of it. And secondly, the law and the prophets are vital for us to know God and to know what he expects of us. And as far as the prophets go, it's, we need to understand that many people have, have taken this teaching so many different ways. Most people just say, well, he didn't come to abolish the law, and they focus on the law. But he says prophets here. And they're connected. And so as far as the prophets go, the foundation of the church, my friends, is built on the apostles and what? Prophets. That's in accordance with Ephesians 2.20. It says there that the foundation of the church is built on the testimony of the apostles and prophets, which Christ as the chief cornerstone. So if the prophets are destroyed or abolished or diminished disregarded, then the foundation of the church is undermined and it's compromised. And what happens to a structure when the foundation is undermined and compromised? It collapses in on itself. And this is what we see with churches that diminish the law of God and have this antinomian, anti-law attitude they're undermining the underpinning of the foundations of the church. And then they become, they, they, they use something that God has established and given and they pervert it. And it becomes something that's not really a church at all. And Jesus Christ will not have his church collapse. He will not have this. And so he will not have the law and the prophets destroyed or diminished in any shape, any way, form, or fashion, yet all of it shall utterly be fulfilled. We're going to look at two camps, equally false and heretical, of both I've had some experience with, and so I can only speak to that, and I only bring these things up because I have experience with them and I know them to be false based on the scriptures. The first one is the antinomian viewpoint, teaching no law, anti-law, freedom to live as one wishes, claims that grace sets one at liberty to live as one wishes outside of the law of God. The second is the Torah observant movement, which I've had some experience with sometimes referred to as the Hebrew Roots Movement, Messianic Christians, not to be confused with black Hebrew Israelites, although there is some overlapping connection there. These claim that one ought to have a strict adherence to the Torah. To be a Christian, you ought to have a strict adherence to the Torah in order to rightly follow Yeshua. They won't call him Jesus because that's a Greek name. We can only call him Yeshua because that's his Hebrew name. And they get offended if you don't call Him Yeshua. They claim that ceremonial and dietary laws are still in full effect. And some even say that if you disregard the dietary laws, then you're going to hell. They deny that Jesus is God. They observe all the feasts of the Old Testament. They often view Paul the Apostle. I've heard it said both ways. They either view the Apostle Paul as either just misunderstood or somewhat heretical. And you can't trust him. I heard somebody say one time to me, You don't worship Jesus, you worship Paul. So these, both of these viewpoints are on opposite ends of the spectrum, equally heretical. So let's start here with the former the antinomian view, which is truly the largest false doctrine and most propagated in our nation in our time today. There are elements of the antinomian view in almost every single denomination to some degree or another. It is the one that at the very least diminishes the law of God and the prophets, and more often, totally disregards it. This is, there's one well-known pastor named Andy Stanley, who pastors a large congregation in Georgia, who says we ought to unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't need to focus on the Old Testament. We just need to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Well, you can't even have the emphasis on that without the Old Testament to back it up. And to somebody who says that, I mean, have they not read Matthew 5, 17? The explicitness, the, 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 the just direct, specific edict here by Jesus, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. So there's a diminishing in that. And again, it's important to remember that Jesus is saying law and prophets. And I believe that this is significant because both are tied together and they, they are what make up the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, that's all encompassing of the Old Testament. And I'll keep pointing and highlighting to John five thirty nine, because it's all a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I believe there's an important connection that can't be missed. So now what did the prophets often do? When, they, when God called them to go and preach and say one of them like uh, Jeremiah said, you know, the burden of the word of the Lord, come to me. Or some of the minor prophets like um, Hosea or Amos or anything like that. The burden of the word of the Lord. What did they often do? Well, they pointed people to the law. They said, you've transgressed the law. You have turned away from the law. You're following idols. Now go back and serve the Lord God. Go back, repent, and follow the law. Keep the law. Remember the law. They would come and preach and warn people to turn back to the law. And the law in of itself was also prophetic, pointing to the coming Messiah, often giving types and illustrations of what Jesus was uh, What was to be fulfilled by Jesus, the coming Messiah. And so again, Christianity was not, is not a new religion. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. Now we have now, because of this antinomian, anti-law mentality, we have now an out-of-control lawlessness in our society. A defund the police movement even. A disregarding of the law of God. If the law of God is disregarded, why would the law of the state even matter? Because it has no authority. The law, the government was God's idea. Government was instituted to restrain evil in the world, as it says in Romans 13. Now, when I was growing up, I often heard a saying, to each his own. I don't know if anybody ever heard that. To each his own. This cliche gives the impression, you do your thing, I'll do mine. You stay out of my way, I'll do what I want to do, you do what you want to do, and uh, everything will be fine. You don't tell me what to do, I won't tell you what to do. To each his own. That's the mentality of this antinomian, anti-law society that we live in. And we've seen this before. Before. There's nothing new. We've seen this before in the book of Judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. Same thing as to each his own. This is a rebelliousness to the law of God that's even in the church. And I want to say that I truly believe that because the mainstream churches have disregarded the law, failed to preach the gospel, failed to give the full counsel of the word, it has then affected society. Not being you know we the last time I preached on this, we preached on salt and light, the church not being the salt and the light, and using the Word of God as the as the weapon, the sword that it is, and you know I am very much in this moment preaching um, aware of the weight of this, and I don't want to misconstrue anything um, but i but I have my weapon, I have the sword here, and so that's what we use. To to preach, that's what we use to discern and to be salt and light. And to diminish that is a huge problem. And it will and has affect society. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Hey, you know, that's where we are today. They even... So... Today, yesterday's conservatives are now today's libertarians, and yesterday's libertarians are now today's anarchists. The whole thing now is not by the by the politicians and the political movement it's not turned back the law of god it's just i i want to be free give me my freedom you're not going to tell me what to do that's the, that's the cry from both ends of the spectrum of of uh political political rhetoric i mean one wants to use the, the power of the state to oppress. The other one wants to just do whatever they want. That's why I'm not a libertarian. I believe that the, that the Bible gives the government the authority to, to legislate morality to the unbeliever. It must be. If it's just, hey, do whatever you want to do, then we're all in a, in a big mess. We don't want our children to live in a world like that. Many states today are legalizing sin and vice and drugs, and you know, they'll make sure that it's illegal for you to speak God's name in the public square and in the churches, or sorry, in the schools, and well, probably in the churches soon. But as far as sin goes, we want to make sure we get our feel of that, make all that legal. Let's get the police out of the way. They use all kinds of reasons. Well, our. Jails are overcrowded and so what just make sin legal just to alleviate the no there's must be a turning back of the law to to the law of god and with legalized sodomy and homosexuality how long will it be before pedophilia is legalized that's the road that we're on this attitude of anti-law is prevalent in many churches today and i as i said i believe it's the single most widespread false doctrine in mainstream christianity many don't even realize that it's there in their church because it's so subtle it's not necessarily a direct teaching of immorality or against morality and it, or, or it 's not necessarily a direct teaching against god 's law, but it 's subtle in that it just avoids it it just avoids god 's law it just avoids the law and the prophets it's it's subtle it it, it, only, it only they only have sermons and lessons on grace and mercy and they and these things are are good, but there has to be an understanding of why we even need grace and mercy because of the condemnation of the law and because we 've broken the law and also this attitude of disregarding and just avoiding the law and sin, well, that appeals to the flesh. And that produces false converts. And I want to tell you that the Word of God, the gospel, the law, all of it, doesn't really appeal to the flesh. It appeals to the soul and to your desire to live. Because the wages of sin is death. The law demands it. And that's a hard line, but it's one that we must hold. Because the law is absolute and unchanging, unwavering. They avoid the law and sin and say things like, God accepts you the way you are. God's not angry with you. He he loves you. Many say that if I tell or we tell an unregenerate sinner that they have to repent, well, then you're, that's heresy. You just have to believe. But what is belief? Belief is, in in the Bible, the the Greek word pisteo is fully persuaded to be, it's a life-changing thing. If you shall call upon the name of the Lord, confess with your mouth and believe in thine heart. And Jesus preached repentance. The apostles preached repentance. And this preaching of repentance, by the way, it gives a very direct implication. This is what I mean. Jesus commanded people to repent of sin in Mark 1 when he preached throughout the towns of Galilee, saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. In Luke 13, where he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In Acts 17, where he says he now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance, it's prevalent. That's just a few examples. This is an implication that the law of God is still binding on humanity. Because if it wasn't, you wouldn't need to repent. It's still binding on humanity. The law is very much still binding and in effect. Where did we lose that? Where did we? What happened? You know, we have today constantly new doctrines coming out, and uh, Bible teachers—they're coming up with some new thing and new interpretation. There are so many denominations and so many teachings on the Bible. It's—it's it's hard to make sense of it all. This is because they're not relying on the the Word of god they 've diminished the law they 've diminished the prophets, and so they 're left to philosophies and so now we get the wisdom of man and and if anything in the Word of God uh, is contrary to sin and what they want to do, well we just got to sh- shove it off to the side shove it off to the side we 'll come up with a new way to interpret this, and we 'll get a big following. This is why you even have things like the the Torah observant Christians and the Hebrew roots movement and the antinomian uh, side. That you have those things because people say, well, hey, that's, that's your interpretation of the Scripture. You, you can interpret that any way. No, you can't. How can you interpret that any other way? Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. What other way is to interpret that? I've heard all kinds of different things. They misconstrue the word fulfill. They say, well, he fulfilled it. Which means, oh, he didn't abolish it. It's still kind of there, but it's fulfilled. So I don't have to... That's not what the word means. The word actually means to fill up, to complete, to bring to pass. Let's see, what is that word there? Playru to make full, to fill up, to render full or complete to make complete in every particular. Hinder perfect. To carry through to the end. To accomplish and carry out. So the definitions of words matter. And so we can't just shovel off the law when it does not meet our what we want to do. Now... Like I said, Jesus commanded people to repent of sin. And there's this implication in just the command to repent that the law is still in effect. Now, according to 1 John 3, 4, this is the definition of sin. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That's the definition of sin. It's the transgression of the law. So Jesus says, I'm not destroying the law. I'm not diminishing the law. I'm not abolishing it. He says, let the law speak. Let it crush the guilty sinner under the weight of it. Let the law force us to confront our sin and deal with it. And not affirm it, because when you diminish the law of God and you shovel it off to the side, then you will end up affirming your sin, justifying it. but Jesus says, "Let the law speak." The reformers had an understanding of this remember uh, I, I said that i'm my view is going back to the orthodox christian this is what the church has said for centuries regarding this this is i 'm not trying to uh, reinvent the wheel or give some new understanding, but the reformers had an understanding that the law was still binding and in effect. John Calvin derived that the law of God currently has three uses. The first being that the law is used to convict of sin, to stop the mouth, Romans three nineteen through 20. The second, and also Galatians three twenty four through 25, which we're going to visit there in just a moment. The second is the civil use in which the law of God is a restraining force of evil in society. The third is for believers to be instructed in living righteously, which we desire out of gratitude for the grace we have received from the Lord. I want to read a direct quote from that thesis that John Calvin wrote, because I basically, those three things are... uh, Uh, sort of just a synopsis but I didn't have time to read the whole thing we'd be here a while but I do want to read this one quote directly from what he wrote this is what he said regarding the third part because I think this is what's important as it pertains to us as believers regarding the third part he says the believer profits from the law in this way for it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is which they aspire to follow and to confirm in them in this knowledge. Just as a servant who desires with all his soul to approve himself to his master must still observe and be careful to ascertain his master's dispositions that he may comport himself in accommodation to them. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity. For none have yet attained to such a degree of wisdom as that they may not, by the daily instruction of the law, advance to a purer knowledge of the divine will. Then, because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. "...by frequently meditating upon it. He will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it, and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin. In this way must the saints press onward, since, however, great the alacrity with which under the Spirit they hasten toward righteousness. They are retarded by the sluggishness of the flesh." and make less progress than they ought. So the law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as men do a lazy, sluggish mule. Even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he is still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth. I quite like that. I like that he compares the law as a whip to the flesh, urging us on. And without that whip, there is no urging on to obey. That's what happens in the anti-law churches. And I have experience with that because I was a part of a church like that, a part of a I guess a, a, a Christian fellowship like that who gave service to the laws. That, yeah, you know, we believe all that. And they wouldn't teach against morality. They, they wouldn't say sin is okay. But there was always an excuse. There was always a diminishing. We're not gonna, we, we don't teach on that. And we're not going to emphasize that. And so the whip was just kind of thrown in the closet never picked up and used. And as to the first use of the law, Charles Spurgeon said this, Unbeliever, the Ten Commandments are like ten great cannons ready to unleash upon you. This barrage of artillery fire that's ready to just come down upon you and just utterly annihilate you. That's what the law is to you, unbeliever. So that brings me to this. Let's notice also that the law's binding nature and condemnation differ in who it is applied to. Let's look back at Romans 3:19 through 20. And we're also going to look at Galatians 3:24 through 25, but first Romans Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Galatians three twenty four Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So, notice here this phrase in both of those verses from Romans and Galatians under the law. What is that referring to? What does that mean, under the law? As opposed to no longer under the law. Well, it means under the condemnation. Under the condemnation of the law. The law has shifted its application. As an, from an unbeliever to a believer, the law is now applied differently. and means something different to us now. It's still not abolished or destroyed. The moral law is binding on us as believers in the sense that we're no longer under its condemnation. We now rejoice in the law, as David did in Psalm 19. We no longer have the law as an obstacle. It's no longer our prosecutor. But now we see the law as an avenue of God's grace. Do you see that? It's, we now see that as just another avenue. Sorry, avenue is not the right word, but another mode of God's grace. Because the law was what brought us to Christ. The law was from God's grace. Without the law, the gospel doesn't make sense. Because it was our schoolmaster. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under that regime of the condemnation of the law of God. Now the law of God has... And it's a mode of grace in the sense that it was used to bring us to Christ, but also to guide us, to instruct us. Something that we rejoice in. Let's look at Psalm 19, 7 through 14. This is our attitude now. Before, the law is a terror. When you preach the law to unbelievers, many get angry. We don't want to hear that. We, we want... We want to be okay in our sin, and you're, this is making us angry because the law is condemning to the unbeliever. It's a prosecutor. It stops the mouth, it says there in Romans 3. You, you have no excuse. Well, but I, did, I was going to do this. No, the law says guilty. But now, no longer under the condemnation of the law, we view the law totally different. It's no longer a terror. It's, it's, a, it's a guidance. It's uh, to instruct us. This is what David said concerning the law. Psalm 19, beginning verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins." let them not have dominion over me then shall i be upright and i shall be innocent from the great transgression let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight o oh, lord god my strength and my redeemer a total view of the law as grace there and this is how we view it now it's not burdensome it's a protector Protects us. Just another thing that God has put in place as a part of his means of grace to us. Now this brings us to look at the second camp that I pointed out. The Torah observant Christian, the Hebrew Roots Movement. When we say the law and the prophets are still binding on us, I want you understand that we mean the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Why do we say that? Why is that the Orthodox Christian teaching, the doctrine that's been the church's stance for centuries? Because this is the New Testament pattern. That's why. Why do we say that They are wrong when they say that we should all be in subjection to the dietary laws or that we must keep all the feasts and observe other ceremonial things because this is the pattern in the teaching of the New Testament. Simple. Are these things regarding ceremonial law, judicial law that God has set aside, and while nothing in the law is abolished, are there things fulfilled? Are there things that we can clearly see that are set aside? Absolutely. Self-evident. The biggest one is the sacrificial system. The law prescribed that the Jews had to make animal sacrifice at the temple. There were certain requirements about the sacrifice that had to be met. They can't sacrifice today because there's no temple. God's removed the temple. They have no way to sacrifice to do their animal sacrifices, to abide by that portion of the law. It's set aside. That's something that we can clearly observe. So, we see that. And are Orthodox Jews, do we see them still performing the animal sacrifices? No, they can't because there's no temple. Jesus Christ remains the final sacrifice once and for all for sin. And without him, there is no sacrifice for sin. I don't care how pious of a Jew you are, how pious of a Muslim you are. There's no sacrifice for sin, thus the law condemns you. So Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. He said, I am the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He said, he is the propitiation for sin. So he fulfilled that. Yet that does not mean, just because that's set aside, that the prophets are abolished or destroyed. Now dietary laws were used, do we, do we see that pattern in the New Testament that that's fulfilled or set aside? Dietary laws were used to separate the Jews from other nations and also for cleanliness and health. But it cannot be a means of holiness and inward righteousness because Jesus, he himself said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him but what comes out in Matthew fifteen eleven. We also see in Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius where Peter has a vision from God to go to Cornelius a Gentile and Peter says I cannot I've never eaten unclean. And God says arise Peter kill and eat I have what I have cleansed do not call unclean. And again there's a pattern in the New Testament concerning these things and all the dealings with the law and how Christians are to relate to it. We see a pattern This is why you need the full counsel of God. This is why there are so many false doctrines because people take one scripture, they cherry pick it, and they say, well, you know, because the the Torah-observing Christians will turn this around. They'll say, well, it says right there the law is not abolished, not destroyed. You need to be keeping every single bit of it. But there's the full counsel of God, friends. And this is the pattern Every time in dealing with the law and how we as Christians are to relate to it, not one time does the Lord Jesus or any of the apostles say clearly or explicitly, do not eat swine. Not one time. Do not eat this or that. Never does the New Testament specifically tell us to observe certain Old Testament feasts or any aspects of the ceremonial law. It's just not there. Let's look at Matthew 22:34 through 40. Because this is important to do. It has to do with that. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. He had just gone through uh, sort of debating with them over resurrection. And remember he says, well, you say there's no resurrection. Well, God's not the God of the dead, the God of the living. He says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we come to this. But when the Pharisees has heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Notice the intent of the question. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these Two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Now this is a this is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. So for more detail, I'd like to go there now to Deuteronomy 6. Just some background here to Deuteronomy 6, there has been uh, a repeating of the law of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and that spills over somewhat into chapter 6, and I want to look at verses Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy mind, with all thy might. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and thou and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on the gates, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers to Abraham, Isaac to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We see there a more detailed intent of the law And that is, the law was to guide them. But he's reminding them here in chapter 6 that when you're blessed and your house is full of all good things and you have peace, do not forget the Lord God who brought you out of bondage. That's our sort of default, isn't it? When things are going great, we're just like, Yeah, praise the Lord, and, you know, we forget about obedience. We forget who God is. We forget that he's the God who gives and takes away. And so he says here, Jesus is not... I'm not one to say, because this is sort of the anti-law, antinomian view... Well, you know, the law is just reduced to, you know, love God and love your neighbor. That's all you need to do, brother. And then everything else, don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that's the intent of the law. He's saying the intent of the law is to show you how to love God, to love him, to fear him with all your heart, soul, and strength. He says there in chapter 5, verse 29 of Deuteronomy, Oh, that there was such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God gives us his law as a protector. Just like we give our children certain rules. You know, you give your your son, a a car, let's say, turn 16, 17, give him a car and say, okay, here's the keys, but there's rules with this that, that has to go by. God gives us a wife or a husband and says, okay, there's rules with this gift. You forget the rules, you forget the law, then it falls apart and the blessing goes away. Like a loving father, God has given us his law. And now the unbelievers, the world, disdain the law. But we rejoice in it. It's another action of God's grace. Now, moving on before I run out of time. I want to look at this. What about circumcision? This is... I say this to show you something clear, going back to the, uh, this, this idea that are there things that God has set aside? What is it that's still binding on us as Christians, as believers? Galatians six twelve through 15. There are certain false teachers here who are evidently telling the church of Galatia that the men must be circumcised. Now, circumcision was a command that God had given to Abraham and the children that this is a sign. This is, it was an outward thing that was supposed to be a visual of an inward thing because he says circumcision of the heart is what really matters, but they were still to circumcise. That was a command that you couldn't say, well, I'm just circumcising the heart, so I don't have to worry about that. No, you had to do it. Galatians 6, 12 through 15, Paul deals with this. He says this. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, notice that, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creature. So obviously, that part of the law is set aside. Circumcision doesn't matter. In other words, these people that Paul was dealing with in Galatians, they were trying to say, in order for you to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew first that 's not true he 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 dealt with that, whether uncircumcision or circumcision doesn 't avail anything but a new creature in Christ now circumcision doesn 't mean it 's a bad thing. I think we use it as a means of cleanliness and and things like that. Uh, we circumcised my son uh, in fact, there was something cool about that I had a um, we had planned to get him circumcised the day he was born in the hospital. The hospital wouldn't let me be in the room. They said, no, you can't be in there. I said, well, we're not getting him circumcised here then. We called the pediatrician. He said, yeah, you can come, you can come watch, do whatever. You can be in there. I said, great. Went there, little baby, got him circumcised on his eighth day of life. Now, that's the day that God commanded all male child, children to be circumcised. Why? Well, come to find out, you know, when they circumcise a little baby boy in the hospital when he's first born, they give him a shot of vitamin K. Vitamin K helps the blood to clot so that there's no hemorrhaging. I found this out that on the eighth day of a little boy's life, his vitamin K level is as high as it ever will be, naturally. And so there we see the wisdom of God. Just a small little anecdotal thing, but it doesn't mean that it's for holiness And so there we see the reasoning behind these laws that were given to the Jews. And I'm almost done. So when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying, the law and the prophets, all the scriptures testify of me. John 5, 39. I am come... I'm here to fulfill those things, to render all the promises, all the prophecies, all these ceremonies that pointed to me and testified of me complete and accomplished. And he said, by the way, what was his dying words on the cross when he yielded up the ghost? It is finished, or it is accomplished. When the Lord spoke in Isaiah 7, 14... The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Literally, God with us. Jesus saying, I am he. Prophecy, promise fulfilled. When in Genesis 3, the Lord said he would send a Savior from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus saying, I am he. I'm fulfilling it. Prophecy fulfilled. When in Exodus 12, the Lord gave the Passover lamb and commanded the Passover lamb to be slain, the blood of the, door, the, the, blood of the lamb uh, smeared across the doorpost, that's me, says the Lord Jesus, fulfilled. I am the, the lamb slain that is sl- slain for the sin of the world. In Ezekiel 36, when the word of the Lord declares, a day is coming when I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, I'll put in my spirit Put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to do and keep my commands. Putting that on the inside. And Jesus saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. This prophecy fulfilled. The moral law is still binding on us, it's a guard, it's a guide. We ought to take it seriously and understand the righteousness of God that's there, and also understand the grace of God that's there. And then going back to Matthew 5. You know, the song later took a few minutes from me, so I'm getting that back. I'm in John here, sorry. He says this thing about Whosoever therefore, verse 19, shall break one of these least commandments and teach men, so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever do shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So is there degrees of the law? Yes. But notice there that he says, even when you break the smallest one, it's bad. You might be least in the kingdom of heaven, but you're still there. There's a show of God's forgiveness and mercy. And so while the law is definitely binding, it is, there are things set aside, there, there's things been fulfilled, and guess what? The things that aren't fulfilled, they're going to be when Jesus Christ returns. The judicial laws of Israel are not in effect today in, in their nation. They're, they're a secular nation like we are. I mean, they don't, if they, if they were going by the judicial laws from the Torah, then they'd be stoning their kids when they got out of line and certain things. And I think the UN would probably have something to say to that. But nevertheless, those things, judicial, ceremonial, some of them are going to be reinstituted when Christ reigns. But for right now, Christ is dealing through the church. And I believe our obligation is to the moral law. That's the universal Law when when Jesus gave the law to the rich young ruler, did he give the dietary law? No, he gave the moral law. Go sell everything you own, come back, follow me. That was the, he couldn't do that. But first he said, remember, you know, keep the law, keep the commandments. He said, Oh, I've done that. When Paul gives the law to the Corinthian church in chapter six, he says, Don't be deceived. No liar, no fornicator, nor adulterer. No homosexual shall inherit the kingdom of God. Does he say there that no swine-eater shall inherit the kingdom of God? No, you know, somebody who doesn't observe all the the, the feasts and everything. Will Will they not inherit? No, he gives them the moral law. That's the pattern. That's what we're pointed to, and that's universal across humanity. So I think that's what we have to stand on and affirm and not diminish it in any wise I believe wholeheartedly the law of God must be used in preaching the gospel because the law of God convicts of sin. So let's not be antinomian and let's not be legalistic in the sense that these two opposite ends of the spectrum. We find balance there in the orthodox interpretation and view that the church has held through centuries. Well, God bless you guys and uh, I hope that This continues to be a blessing to you as it is to me. And praise God.